0: This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers, thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory
1: Law Firm. G'day, g'day, g'day. This is Leon Logan Nathan here. Uh, Well, I'm I'm stumbling all over my words now because Peter asked me to get in front of the mic first, but uh, here with you today on the Territory Story Podcast uh, and uh, on the the topic of Peter.
2: Because we're not... um... Talking to an Australian today, you thought you'd be as Aussie as you could be in the intro, Leon.
1: No, I've been dying to say that for a long time, Pete. You know? Have you? For
2: me, it, it comes naturally,
1: that part. Th-
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the triple up of the G'day. I'm very, very comfortable and, and familiar with the double up, but I, I quite like it.
1: Uh, the triple up, you know what, if, if you're going to ask me to dig deep and give you an answer for that, I'm going to say the Sullivan's. Oh, really? Possibly. possibly. (laughs) But that's
2: going to take uh, everyone back a long way and probably
1: discard three quarters to 90% (laughs) of our audience.
2: (laughs) Well, ironically enough, I was actually looking at the analytics last night Mm -hmm. and there is a percentage of our listeners who fit into the 0 to 17-year-old bracket, so they're out. Yes. Then there's 18 to 25, they're out. And I'm not sure where it kicks in after that, but it, um, m- might, it might even be 40 plus. I'd have to be. I well, suppose I was going to say at least 40 plus. So there you uh, are. yeah, so mate,
1: uh, we have uh, for our special guest today. Um, we're heading back overseas uh, because we have been. Because uh,
2: we can't physically, we've got to do it on the
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the podcast. Well, we've had a, we've had a couple of good uh, a couple of good local episodes in. Uh, Matt Williams and then Melanie Gray, which um, I must thank you very much, mate, for your <laughs> that was just absolutely fantastic. And uh, and my obviously humble and 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 uh, you know, deep gratitude to your wife Fiona for uh, <laughs> allowing you to um, uh, discard your children for uh, the six hours that you had to take to do that yesterday.
2: And do my head in. No, it was, it, the end result was good. It was just there was some frustrating moments in the middle. But thank you for thank you for your thank you. <laughs> so uh, we are heading
1: back to the US today. Um, we are meeting with a friend of mine, um, another LAW lawyer. Uh, his name is Nick Gowan. He's a lawyer at, at the law firm of Burke, Warren, McKay & Sarah I'm going to say, yeah. but Nick can uh, confirm that in a minute. <laughs> um, I, I, just, I just generally go with Burke Warren. Um, I met Nick in. Oh, this is going to be hard. It was in. I know it was in Miami. I just can't remember the day, the year. What was that? Yet? It
0: was 20. Uh, 20-
1: Seventeen, I think. Seventeen. I, 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 I remember the it's exact. Joe Stone Crab. It was Joe Stone Crab. Um, for Territorians that don't know Joe Stone Crab, it is an institution in Miami and also Chicago. I'm not sure whether they've got any any outlets anywhere else. Possibly New York, maybe. Or yeah, possibly. Joe- I'm not sure. Right. Um, now we in the Territory love our mud crabs, don't we, uh, Pete? Sure do.
2: The beautiful chili crabs on the wharf are a uh, specialty
1: we, to die for. We, and I would have, as I do with our mangoes, I say, you know, I will, I will put our mangoes up against any mango in the world. And I did the same with the mud crabs. I thought, you know what? We have the best mud crabs. And then I went to Miami and I sat down next to Nick and uh, was introduced to stone crabs. I'd mm. never heard of them. Um, mm.
0: They're the yeah. sweetest crab you oh, ever my
1: have. God. <laughs> Nick, they are unbelievable, unbelievable. Wow. And so that's where I met Nick, and um, and I, I can't say that I'd met anyone from Chicago before I met Nick. Um, possibly may have met Liz in Bangkok, but I think Bangkok was after Chicago. But anyway, yeah, it was. Um, uh, and uh, you know, Nick. Look, you know, I've, not, I've met a quite a few Americans in my life, and you know, they come from different parts of the of the states. They have different accents. They have, uh, you know, slightly different um, cultural attributes. But the thing that struck me about Nick was, and I've said this to Nick as well. I said, "Gosh, Nick, I, I feel like you you're about to punch me in the face." Very <laughs> <laughs> friendship. And uh, and you know, when we sort of delved into it a little bit more. It was it was sort of this. I felt like I was on the set of The Untouchables, you know. Um, it's a it's a really the, the Chicago accent and the sort of the, the, the manner is sort of quite different to other parts of the US. It's it's much more a bit in, in your face, and it's uh, it comes across to uh, you know an Australian like me with with no experience of dealing with people from uh, Chicago is. As, as, as quite um aggressive <laughs> so okay. so we're, uh, we're, we're blunt <laughs> so uh, uh you we're know direct
2: on um, um, exactly so it probably mixes that, uh, okay with the aussie uh the aussie attitude in in at times as well i right. would have thought. We can be
1: blunt. Uh, we can be, but in a different way. Uh, yep. Certainly not that way. But, uh, so we, we, I worked through that with Nick and, and realized that he was actually <laughs> a good guy uh, at the end of it. Um, and uh, we've become good friends over the last few years. So not that we see each other every day, but we do meet at these meetings uh, that LAW put on. So with that hell of a long introduction,
2: <laughs> Nick Gowan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Leon. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Welcome, Nick. Welcome, Nick. It's uh, I, I've I've heard the story before from Leon, and although we're only meeting virtually through Zoom today, I don't feel like you want to punch me, so that's a good no. start.
0: <laughs> what, what can I say? You know, I, I'm a very direct person. You, you, you get me started on a topic, I'm not likely to, to take a step back. I think we were talking about politics or something along those lines, so I've gotten to a point in... in 40 revolutions around the earth that I just choose not to hold back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that suits us fine, doesn't it? It does indeed.
1: So Nick, uh, why don't you lead us with your story, where you were born, uh, where you grew up and uh, went to university and met your wife and and all that, and uh, take us to the present.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on. I was born and raised uh, here in Chicago and on the southeast side close to the Indiana border and I went to university I went to the University of Illinois in Chicago and then went on to law school uh, in downstate Illinois at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign so I have spent my life in the state of Illinois in 37 out of 40 years in the city of Chicago so to that extent, I'm probably a little more boring than some of your other <laughs> <laughs> some of your other guests. But I, I consider myself a a lover of Chicago, all things Chicago. And you know, my, I met my wife here in Chicago. We worked at the same law firm when I first came out of school. I met her there, um, and we weren't dating at the time until she left. But I met her at that law firm. Um, and we've been married for oh, 12 years this year.
2: Wow, so interesting.
1: Always, it's interesting that Nick said um, we weren't dating until she left the firm.
2: I, I, I felt <laughs> well, there might have been some kind that of conduct yeah, issues. That. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did that.
0: I did that for her benefit. You know, she, she, she always likes to say no, 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 no. We weren't dating. Say okay. So,
2: <laughs> I mean, if some dates happen to cross over, they cross over, you know? (laughs) Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, look, tell us a little bit about your your parents. Were they also from Chicago or?
0: No. uh, My mom is from a town in Alabama called Prattville, Alabama. And is actually just outside of Montgomery. And what's interesting is my wife's family, my wife is from Mobile, Alabama, which is on the Gulf Coast. And my cousin, who I used to see every summer when I would go to Prattville to visit, lived across the street from my wife's aunt, and we never knew each other before. So we <laughs> were in Prattville Uh-oh. every summer at the same time, year after year after year, but never met. Um, my dad was from a town just south of Chicago called Kankakee. It's an uh, industrial town that's had some some issues. And he died when I was about seven years old. So he owned a, a tree removal business, tree removal and firewood.
1: And how did they meet, <coughs> your parents? They
0: met. They both worked for the city of Chicago back in the late '60s, early '70s. So how did your mother? Met.
1: How did your mother get from Alabama to Illinois?
0: Well, she went to New York first because one of her brothers had moved there. So she, after she graduated high school. She moved to New York City to go to school and, and hang out with, with her brother. and she stayed there for a couple of years before moving to Chicago to we have a she has a cousin here uh, and she came to uh, continue her education as well as to live in, with my cousin and help her take care of her children. So her sure. mom and dad met at that time.
1: In, in Chicago? In Chicago. Right, right. See, so, so for uh, <clears throat> Australians like us, uh, our understanding of, uh, of the U.S., especially when it comes to um, uh, African-American issues, uh, things like, you know, growing up in Alabama... And it's 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 tenuous at best, uh, right. uh, informed m- uh, mostly by movies and things that we watched, like uh, Mississippi Burning and uh, uh, you know uh, Martin Luther King. Um, so fill us in a little bit about. I mean, uh, I mean, your mother must have had some interesting stories or, or background at least in Alabama back in those well, days. Right, she,
0: she did. But her background, she never experienced any of the. What you would what you would think of as the Mississippi Burning type experience uh, in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement. She was alive and and you know during that time period, and she has some interesting stories regarding um, the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, she was living right outside of Montgomery at the time, and a lot of people lived in Montgomery, it, but not of the direct not of the direct involvement in that way. Um, from her stories, she tells you what the interactions were between blacks and whites. And what's interesting, I think is the interactions were not exactly what you would expect from, you know, the, the strongest civil rights movies that you would see.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: However, the interactions were certainly not fair and equitable. Um, you still had situations where you know, you've got segregated lunch counters. You've got segregated schools. You've got segregated neighborhoods and communities. Like I'm sure there was not a, a white soul in my mom's high school. Um, there was very few whites who lived on her block. And to the extent that there were, they would have been the business owners who my grandfather would have worked for, or they would have been the individuals where my grandmother worked at a chicken plant where she processed chickens, or my grandfather was a driver for some white families in Prattville.
1: Hmm.
0: So it's more of the the day-to-day experiences that black folks lived through so not necessarily the overt discrimination but the covert discrimination is just as bad Mm -hmm. um so and, and that was one of the reasons why she left from her perspective she would rather leave to go north go to new york city and make it on her own versus stay in alabama and be beholden to someone else you know so she had offers that you know, certain families would pay for her to go to a four-year college and say, okay, this is what you can do. But she knew that if she did that, then she'd be working for them for the rest of her life.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't aware of that. Were you,
2: Pete? Those things happen? Well, not directly, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, Yeah, I mean... No, I couldn't say I had first-hand knowledge of it, but in a way it makes total sense because uh, as Nick said, it's, it it may not be that direct discrimination, but it's just the way it was set up.
0: Right. It's it's the benign day to day, not necessarily (laughs) harassment, but it is certainly a de facto discrimination that you are experiencing on a daily basis, that you're living in housing that's substandard in comparison to whites, but you still may be doing much better than your black neighbor or your black cousin. Um, Your parents may be doing relatively well uh, in comparison to others, but in reality, they're not doing well because of the system that was set up.
2: Right. Which would sort of be like a two tiered system, Nick. In, oh. in the second tier, you just you've only got a certain level you can get to.
0: That's absolutely right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: And, and what's interesting is things haven't changed that much. Things haven't changed that much in the south, and they haven't changed much in in the northern part of the United States. You still have that two tier system.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to definitely talk about that a bit more, especially in relation to COVID-19. Um, but I would really like to take this opportunity, Nick, with you to fill some holes in, in my knowledge. Uh, I'm not sure where Pete's at with all of this. You know, I've read a little bit about the Civil War and, and you know, um and, and where the U.S. was there, where they are now. I mean, I'm an avid reader of the New York Times and Washington Post, so there's, there's lots of opinion pieces and articles, Jamel Bowie and others, you know, are constantly writing um, interesting pieces. What I what I have failed to grasp and understand to date is how did the U.S. go from winning, uh, well, the, the, the North go from winning the Civil War to messing up reconstruction like to me that's appears to be where this whole thing went skew
0: well I I think I hate to say it's an easy answer but because it's not but in some ways it is easy and the answer is politics so what you had after reconstruction and and for your your listeners in the Northern Territory who may not know reconstruction was that seven and nine year period after the US Civil War where the federal government came into the the former Confederacy, the Southern states and set up systems to allow blacks to move to a point of from servitude or from being slaves to trying to incorporate them into what had become, um, what had become, um, allegedly an equal society based on the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. And what you had is there was never an intent or an interest in actually making black folks full citizens it was just never there. So there was a, there was a tenuous period where although the federal government was providing this outward assistance with the constitutional amendments, the legislation that followed those amendments, those civil rights acts, I believe 1866, they never, they, they were never fully thought out to provide actual rights for black citizens. So even though you had black citizens who were doing well at that time, and there's a large number of black folks who have been elected to public office was probably the largest number of black people who have been elected to public office in the state of Mississippi, probably to date. I can't speak. I can't speak to that uh, completely, but it would not surprise me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, what happened is I'm, I'm sure you know about the Electoral College,
2: yeah.
0: um, which is a, a, a system that we have here in the United States to elect our US president. And to give you a brief history lesson, the Electoral College was always intended to benefit smaller states. And it was always intended to benefit states that had large slave-holding populations. So you had situations where, let's say, for example, the state of Alabama may have far fewer, well, at that time it wasn't Alabama, Kind of fast forward. just imagine you had a slave holding state like South Carolina that had very few white citizens living there at the time. However, they had a large number of slaves. So in the US Constitution, they drafted um, the Three Fifths Compromise to say, okay, you can count three fifths of your slaves as citizens for the purposes of the census. So that means every person was actually three fifths of an individual. So you're three fifths of a man as a slave. Along those same lines, there was discussions about, all right, how do we elect our president? I mean, we can't allow the the proletariat <laughs> to to elect our president. We don't even allow them to elect our senators, who are the highest how, highest congressional house. So what they did is to say, okay, we will allow state legislators to elect the senators, and we will allow this electoral college who is just an amorphous group of individuals to elect our U.S. president. And the key there is the electoral college is based on the number of representatives that are in a particular state. So fast forward to the period of Reconstruction. There was tie in the Electoral College, and the only way to resolve that tie in the Electoral College, the Republicans at the time um, were the party of Lincoln, and they wanted to have their their presidential candidate become president of the United States. Well, the, the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, they weren't necessarily interested in that, but they said, okay, we'll go along with that. However, you need to pull these federal troops out of the South. And that was the deal that the party of Lincoln cut to eliminate Reconstruction and to move us fast forward into the period of Jim Crow. And that lasted from the late 18, mid to late 1800s all the way through the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 60s. Long story, <laughs> but that's how Reconstruction died. It's it's just the reality of it was a political compromise and black folks were thrown away in that compromise.
1: Which is so odd for someone who is not American who reads this on face value, thinks, okay, the Civil War uh, was started because the the South couldn't agree with the North on on the issue of slavery. Uh, Yet after the North won the war and and both sides suffered you know immeasurable um, casualties the whole purpose of the war was just uh, effectively uh, undone through, um, through through the mismanagement or politics of, of reconstruction
0: oh it absolutely was undone because you went from a period of actually slave uh, of slavery to indentured servitude yeah where you had many blacks who moved from slave plantations and then they became workers on these same plantations. Mm-hmm. So they may wake up on one day and they're enslaved and the next day they wake up is we're free. However, I'm still working in the same place. Mm-hmm. I still don't have an opportunity for advancement. I'm mm-hmm. still relying on these same individuals and I still for all intents 10 purposes have no rights.
2: Hmm.
1: So fast forward uh, to today, uh, you said your dad passed away when you were seven. Right. Uh, and so your mother, what did you, what, she, what was she working as while you were growing up?
0: Yeah, she worked in administrative roles for the city of Chicago and various city departments.
1: Right. Is was it just you or did you have any siblings?
0: I have an older brother. He's an engineer. He lives outside of Detroit right now.
1: Okay. So, so
0: he's been... He's been an electrical engineer for many years
1: now. Right. So just the two boys and your mom, a single parent, uh, yep. it would have been tough growing up in Chicago on one income.
0: You know, it, it was tough growing up, but we didn't feel it that way. And I, I know people often say that it's like, Oh, you don't realize you're poor. Like, and you, you realize you have less than others, but you don't realize that you ever had, you didn't have something. Um, I mean, my mom still lives in the same house I grew up in. She owns it, um, and many of her friends are still on that same block. And you just don't think of the situation as like, oh, you know, how was this neighborhood? And the neighborhood has changed. It's, you know, it's certainly not the same as when I was growing up. But that said, if you would talk to my friends who lived in other neighborhoods, they're probably afraid to visit. You know, because of you know the the crime, the violence, and the gangs um, that existed in that neighborhood.
1: So this is growing up in the eighties, right? eighties well, and nineties, yeah. Right. And so, what, what was it? I mean, was it was there gang related issues in your neighborhood? Or, I mean, did you um, were you well, forced to be part of it or anything like that? No,
0: I wasn't. I mean, there was well, there are gangs all over Chicago, right. and in the nineties, it was not it was common for there to be nine hundred murders a year in the city of Chicago. Wow. So you, you read the statistics today and they talk about like, wow, the murder rate is, is high because there were five or 600 people killed like that. Well, first of all, that's awful. But in 1992, I remember the murder, the number of murders in the city were 925, 950. Um, and what happened in where I grew up, it was predominated by predominant, by one gang. So we didn't have very many gang conflicts. So that was good. So I didn't have to experience that, but I knew who I shouldn't be dealing with. And I knew who I should be dealing with and they knew who I was and they knew who my mom was. And in many situations, their uncles and parents knew who my dad was. So I was never subjected to those type of issues. However, It always exists. It's always there. I mean, I I can't tell you the things I've seen riding city buses, you know, back and forth to high school. it's, It's something that can scar children. And I think people wonder, like, how is it that children are in a position to commit crimes? How is it that children... Act certain certain children act certain ways. How is it that children are, are behave in certain ways? And the answer is traumatic stress. When you have a child, and I'm not saying I experienced this, but I know people who have. Um, when you have a child who has seen any amount of violence in their life, and that is how they've been taught either explicitly or implicitly, this is how you address and deal with a the problem, then that's going to continue. Then it only feeds into other issues such as uh, disinvestment in the community, a lack of jobs, uh, a lack of health care, uh, a lack of economic opportunity, a breakdown of the social structure. I mean, all the things that we're seeing now uh, in the COVID-19 era we're, they've always been there.
2: Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I, I just my mind was taking me away for a second, Leon, because I was thinking about uh, children who are, are growing up with implied violence or violence, and I was thinking of Angus for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> Angus is your son. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got, Nick. It's all I got with that (laughs) little fella. Yeah.
0: I've got two, I know.
2: Although, I've got to tell you something, and, and this is definitely not for this podcast because I'm fascinated by what you're discussing, but just in the last week or two, and I don't know how this has come about, but Angus has got this thing in his head where if I tell him I'm going to call the police, he will immediately stop doing whatever it is I'm trying to get him to stop doing. I don't, I don't know where it's come from, but it's it, as I said to Fiona the other day, it's, it's working this week. We'll see what happens next week. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> You're so,
2: Nick, can you,
1: can you tell us a story about, um, you know, a, a situation of you growing up where you thought, oh, gosh, this can go very badly for me? Oh. Because I mean, you mentioned being on the bus.
2: That's why I was thinking about it. He's, he's thinking oh, of I, only one, narrowing it down to one yeah, I mean,
0: thing. There, you know, there, there are situations that you know, I, I can't think of, of one particular situation. I, I always say this. Um, uh, I'm a religious person and I, I was raised in the church and, and my mom has always pressed that for us to say, look, you pray before you head out of the house. know ask the Lord to cover you ask the Lord to protect you and that's uh, that's what I've always believed and you know I've seen I've seen some some interesting things not to say that I've seen the worst not to say that I I know people who haven't seen worse but I, I would say that where I am in life is a testament to my family. Is a testament to my community, and it's a testament that, you know, that there are that there are higher powers that make decisions, and some decisions are preordained.
2: Right,
1: mm-hmm. right. Um, <laughs> look. Um... I could go in so many different directions with that one. I just <laughs> want to try and try and uh, try try and keep some perspective on this. So, okay, let's um, le- let's let's fast forward. Your law. Why, why did you? How did that happen?
0: Uh, how did my involvement in law? No, 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 or, no, no, no. no. Like, how did, how, did, you, how did you? How did
1: How did you become a lawyer? Why did you become a lawyer?
0: Oh, well, I, you know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a federal agent. My, my dream was to be a DEA agent in the Drug Enforcement Administration or FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That was my dream. Um, and I think as I, as I got a little older and I started meeting some lawyers, I realized, like, you know what? I don't want to be a federal agent. I want to be a federal prosecutor.
2: <laughs>
0: and... <laughs> You know, and, and that was my focus. Like, I want to be a prosecutor. I want to be an individual who is taking the pub, the corrupt public officials off the street. I want to be the person who's taking the guns, the drugs, the gangs off the streets. And then at some point, you know, the law firm start calling and you start making money. (laughs) 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 So those, those, those dreams of public service, you know, they're, they're, mm. they're not quite as strong as they were.
1: So, so basically to cut a long story short, you watch the untouchables, you wanted to be Elliot Ness and then, <laughs> uh, and then you sort of drifted. Uh, and then at one point you wanted to be Preet Bharara, uh, and then decided, <laughs> no, <laughs> there's, there's right. not enough money in it.
0: <laughs> it's just, you know what? It, it's, 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 it's great to be Preet Bharara. It's great to be those U S attorneys. I think they do amazing work. Uh, but the reality is, I, I when I came out of law school, I wasn't going to turn down um, the higher salaries.
1: Hmm. Right. So let me ask you about that because in Australia, <laughs> it's a little bit easier for us uh, going getting into higher education. Uh, uh, did you go to a public school?
0: I went. I've been in public schools my entire life. Okay. So you so went to I you went public went to school. Uh, uh, sorry. Public school. Public, public university. Public law school. Right. Uh, and then uh, for us, law school is a as a professional program outside of your undergraduate degree. Yeah. So a, so seven years of public school for me. Right. Um, so I came out with relatively little debt, uh, with federal grants, scholarships, things of that nature. So it's very little, very little debt at all. Um, but I, I still felt that I, I'm not going to turn down, turn down a salary. I, yeah. I just, I just wasn't going to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so you uh, you, you didn't, I presume you didn't start at Burke Warren. You started somewhere else.
0: Oh, no, I started at a, uh, large international firm called Winston and Strawn. Right. And then I left there. Um, and then went to a very small boutique law firm. And then I left that boutique law firm to go to uh, Burke Warren.
1: And what's your area of specialization?
0: Right. Commercial litigation. So I, Involved in dispute resolution across the globe in either arbitrations or, or li- courtroom litigation.
1: So, you're like a trial lawyer. Trial lawyer. Pete likes those. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm in it
0: for the fight.
2: <laughs> I've been wa- I've been watching um, uh, on uh, I've been cramming on that show Billions in the last week or so.
0: No, yeah. i love billions
2: <laughs> that's brilliant yeah so i'm i'm all i'm all about the fight at the moment with the lawyers
0: yeah no yeah. i i love billion i i love billions it's
2: also it's also taught me um somewhat with what you're just talking about where um you know you, you you've got the lawyers in in public life the attorney general and the south district and the northern district and the you know and 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 they're trying to get the in this case the uh, you know the the corrupt hedge funds off the uh, off the street, and uh, and the hedge fund guys have got their private lawyers who are coming up with every trick in the book to keep them on the street. So it's it's right. fascinating.
0: Well, what's interesting is both sides are extremely talented, except the the people on the government side. they're you know, their their salaries are a little bit less. But I'll mm. tell you when they when you have the facts, the law, yeah, and you've got the the amazing investigatory bodies of the alphabet agencies of the federal government, uh, either on the criminal side or the civil side, yeah, it, it's just the, the it's amazing the amount of power and strength they have.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch, and of course the way they've built that show is that there's, you know, there's there's little twists and turns along the way, but I, I presume with these things it's it's based on. Uh, you know, some degree of fact of how it works.
0: Well there's a lot of realism. There's a lot of realism in the show, at least on the 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 legal side. I mean I can't mm. really speak to the to to the high finance
2: <laughs> yeah. part of
0: it. But there there's a there's a lot of realism in it.
2: Yeah. I think if you take uh Wolf of Wall Street and mix it with billions, there's got to be some element of truth behind uh right, exactly. storylines.
0: <laughs> exactly. But they they didn't just make it up.
2: No. No exactly.
1: <laughs> so let's uh let's drift uh, towards COVID-19. Nick, um when did it become an issue for Chicago? When did it become an issue for you personally and where are you all at now?
0: I would say it, my my family and close relations are are, are safe um sheltered in place. So that's, that's great. Um, I would say it really became an issue for the city of Chicago and probably early to mid-March. Um, we've been sheltered pretty much for the last, I think we're going on six weeks now. My family's seven weeks. So it, it is a significant issue. But I was thinking about it. I had to go out um, to, to drive somewhere today and yesterday as well and the biggest difference I would say as to how the disease has affected different parts of the city as, as you, as I probably told you before, Leon, Chicago is a very segregated, um, city, um, not just in, in race and ethnic groups, but socioeconomic groups. I mean, there's very little, there's very little integration in that sense with socioeconomic groupings. Um, And I'll tell you the difference that I've noticed in the last two days between living where I live now, which is, you know, a very well-to-do area um, versus other parts of the city that are struggling is you may see the same number of people out and about, but the people who are out in my neighborhood are out because they want to be, because they're jogging, they're taking, they're walking with their kids in, in the baby stroller or you know, they're going to get takeout from a restaurant. Other parts of the city, they're out because they have to be, because they're either working or they are uh, having to go to a store or they're standing in line for something or they're looking for something. I mean, it, it is a stark difference. And I think what concerns me most about what's happening with COVID-19 in the United States is that we are getting to a point where because of how the, the federal administration over the last three years has sought to divide us as a people, as citizens between men and women, black and white immigrants and native born um, people, what's gonna eventually happen, rural and urban, what's gonna eventually happen is, and it's happening to a certain extent is that there will be people in this country who just don't care because their response will be, it's not me because I'm still living well. Everyone I know is living well. I'm I'm able to work at home and yeah, I have to homeschool my children now, but I'm still getting my packages delivered. I'm still getting my food delivered. I can still go for a run outside without really giving thought to, okay, who's delivering that food? Who's delivering those packages? Who's working in those stores? And at some point, if we don't tend to care about who those people are, then we're going to start moving forward and say, this is a disease that affects everyone. It's a disease that affects those people. And I think you're starting to see a lot of the, we're starting to see the, the, the differentiation between those who are getting sick are those who can't shelter in place. Mm. You know, they're the bus drivers, the package deliverers, the people who are working in grocery stores, we can call them essential workers. We can call them whatever word we want to call them. The reality is they're unable to shelter in place and they're still out there. Mm. And in Chicago, those people tend to be black and Brown. And there are a lot of cities around the country. that are just like that.
2: Hmm. Nick, um, what type of accommodation do you live in? Are you in a house or a townhouse or an apartment building?
0: I live in a single family home. Okay, so I live in a house.
2: I, I'm interested in, um, you know, in, in, I guess, more medium to high density uh, apartment buildings and, and, and how people are dealing with that when it comes to delivery and, and things like that.
0: I, I think, you know, it depends on the community. It, de- it depends on if it's a, a, a wealthier community or a more impoverished community. Um, if it's a wealthier community, I think you still have doormen. Um, you still have a, probably a, a building where most folks may be working professionally, so they may be working from home. More impoverished area, you have people who are still going out and about, and that becomes trouble. We have people who are going out and about and, you know, they're involved in the, in, in the community, you know, they're more likely to bring the virus home.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm. Because you've got, uh, you've got, uh, looking at it now, the U S has almost got a million cases of which, right. uh, 400 odd thousand are in New York and New Jersey. Then there's uh 55,000 in Massachusetts and, Then next comes Illinois with almost 45,000, including almost 2,000 deaths. So where is that, is that, is that leveling off or is that still going up? Where's that at?
0: Well, it's not leveling off yet. Um, I think the number of deaths have decreased. However, we've only started testing up to about 10,000 people per day. So it, the numbers are going to increase because we're testing more. Mm. So if we're testing 10,000 per day and i think there're probably 2,000 or 2,200 or so of uh, people who are being confirmed positive per day, so it's one in 5. So from from my perspective, i don't see this i, I, I don't see this being a leveling off anytime soon and my fear is that people are going to start thinking that the economic result is more important than the health result and they're going to start trying to open up aspects of the economy and I I understand that you need to get back to work but at some point if you're not going to actually resolve some of the problems that are underlying this we'll never get back to work this will never be resolved and as long as there's there's no vaccine, there's no treatment, there's no cure, what do you do? At this point, the testing isn't even there, which I personally think is just, it's appalling. I I, I don't understand how countries such as South Korea and Germany could surpass us with testing. And I know part of that is because the CDC didn't approve tests from those that were being used in other parts of the country, and tests that they were approving were not actually, um, resulting in correct positive, correct positives. There were false positives, at least in the early stages. So uh, until we can get to the point that we are testing more people, I don't see how we reopen.
2: Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I, I, am I'm actually shocked, um, to hear that the numbers are are still increasing at this stage because uh, unless I missed the memo, um, I thought President Trump solved this on the weekend.
0: Oh, of course. He said we we're going to be open. This this was going to be over by April and then he said it's going to be over by Easter. And then he said yeah. you can drink some Clorox.
2: <laughs> Possibly the um the injection kits haven't made it around the country yet, maybe.
0: Yeah, it's it's he's a he's an international embarrassment.
2: Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. It,
0: it's just amazing that you'd have an individual who could be so ignorant, as the leader of any country, let alone the United States of America. That's,
1: uh,
0: mm. I, 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 I can't be as as diplomatic as as my friend Bill Savarino was.
2: <laughs> uh, Bill's I, not uh, diplomatic. Uh, yeah. I, did, I didn't think he was diplomatic when he's, <laughs> his his answer was, "No one cares what he says." Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's, it's 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 frightening how ignorant and how malicious and just just downright foolish he is.
2: Mm, great words. But, w-
0: but what's scarier about it is he's got his 35%, yeah. 40% of the population who they're going to ride with him no matter what, and they're just as frightening because these are people who constantly vote against their economic interests. These are people who he could care less about. And these are people who the economy is passing them up and it will continue to pass them up for the most part. I mean, just because he's saying he wants to make America great again, it doesn't mean that we're going to turn back the clock, thank God, to, you know, the 1940s and 50s. You know, those, those days have passed. And until you come up to a point where, you can be honest with the American people and say, look, certain industries, your jobs aren't coming back. And you know, John McCain said that in 2008 when in the primary against Mitt Romney and he was excoriated for it. In the primary, I remember it was the primary in Michigan. And he told Michigan workers like your jobs aren't coming back. And everyone attacked him. But the truth is, those type of jobs are not going to come back unless you can remodel your economy, which the state of Michigan has begun to do in certain in certain instances
1: so where where is Illinois in the grand scheme of things i mean I listened to a podcast uh, last night um, which was quite uh, frightening to be honest with you about uh, about how uh, Jared Kushner is uh, in charge of a lot of things he probably shouldn't be in charge of (laughs) Um, pretty much everything. And, uh, and uh, deals are being done in relation to the handing out of, uh, you know, ventilators. Uh, Now, where does, where does Illinois fit into it?
0: Well, I I think Illinois, I think our curve is starting to flatten a little bit. Um, I just read in the newspaper today that they were originally planning for a three thousand bed uh, overflow capacity at our large convention center called McCormick Place, and they've now reduced that to one thousand beds so for whatever that is worth, I, I think the the fear of a great expansion is starting to level off, but the numbers of the numbers are still increasing mm-hmm. So I, I think the numbers of people who are being diagnosed are increasing, and um, I don't know what the number of deaths were today um, I, I missed that in the news, but we're we're a long way from being safe. I mean if, if I had to guess, I would say we're not going to be close to normal until after the fall
1: right and is the so that we're talking about september october there September October right. And so is the, the, the mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois, are they Democrat, Republican, what are they? Uh...
0: They're both Democrats. Right. So the, the mayor, she is a lawyer, um, former federal prosecutor, actually. Um, and so she took office a year ago. The governor is J.B. Pritzker, who's a billionaire, um, part of the billionaire family that owns the, the, the Hyatt the Hyatt hotel chain amongst a a number of other amongst a a number of other investments. Um, And he took office two years ago or a year and a half ago.
1: Right. Right. And so uh, uh, are they having to uh, kiss Trump's backside uh, in order to get what they need the way New York seems to have to do?
0: You know what? I don't think they haven't been doing what Cuomo seems to have been done. seems to be doing in New York. Um, but I think part of that is they haven't had the same problems that New York has had. I I think Abbott labs, uh, which developed this new rapid testing, they're based in suburban Chicago. And I think they've been helping a lot. Um, and also Pritzker has a large network and I think that's been beneficial. So I don't, and they've also gone directly to China to purchase PPE. Yeah. So there was a there was a news story that they had some phantom flights on FedEx. They paid almost a million dollars to bring PPE back to the United States, and they had to secret them out of China and into the country so that you know, <laughs> the federal emergency management agency wouldn't take it when it got here. Gosh, Now, we. This is you could not have a worse person, a worse person in charge of the federal government than you have. In Donald Trump right now and this is the epitome I, I think everything that's happened over the last three and a half years should highlight to people that elections matter but this what we are experiencing right now truly highlights that not only do elections matter but science matters empathy matters intelligence matters and ignorance can kill
1: mm-hmm so and yeah,
0: people, people are dying as a result of it.
1: So talking about the future then, Nick, uh, you've got an election um, supposedly in November. And I say It'll supposedly because <laughs> I did listen to a podcast the other day that seemed to indicate that... Actually, no, it wasn't a podcast. It was actually in uh, it's the New York Times or Washington Post that uh, I think Biden came had come out saying that uh, don't be surprised if Trump tries to... Uh, Defer the election to post. Oh, I, I,
0: I believe he would try it. Hmm. Um, I don't believe it will. I don't believe it will happen because he doesn't have the legal right to do it on his own. Um, the interesting part about the United States is we don't have federal elections; we have state elections. Every state elects, and it just so happens that the federal government has decided that the presidential election will occur in November, <laughs> but the federal government has no power over how those elections are held. So as a result of that, it would have to be the individual states would have to make some type of determination. And not to say that he wouldn't have influence with certain of those states, but then it begs the question, this is still, it's not about the popular and it's not about the majority of states, it's about the electoral college. And I haven't run the math myself, but if you just look at the states that control, the Democrats control the state, whether it's control the legislature or control the governor's mansion, Democrats control 24 of those states. Most of those states are likely going to vote blue. And if you talk about what are the presumed toss-up states, usually it's Wisconsin, Michigan, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, well, Wisconsin and Michigan have Democratic governors. Ohio and Pennsylvania, Florida, they have Republican governors. But I I think just with the numbers, you're going to have the majority of Democratic states are going to want the election to go forward. I think the real threat is, is the election going to be safe? Is the election going to be protected from hacking? Is the election going to be protected from interference from God knows who? And <laughs> on top of that, are people going to be able to go to the polls? I mean, there was there was reports out of Wisconsin yes, yeah. earlier, uh, late last week, me, said <laughs> that at least seven people d- were determined to have uh, contracted COVID-19 during the primary election, where mm. a lot of Democrats didn't want... The, the election to, to go forward in Wisconsin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that's the bigger issue. And I think that's a, that's a real issue of, all right, mm-hmm. is this going to be a fair and free election? Because we know that we have not just incompetence in the White House, but you have people who are are truly selfish, self-centered and Frankly, they, they do not care about the rule of law.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, uh, there's no question about that. Um, well, uh, we, you know, uh, we hope that uh, things work out well. In fact, one of the ironies, the great ironies of all the hacking that we hear about is that um, uh, is, uh, we, um, you know, you think if Russia hacked the election, uh, to favor Trump, surely the goodness, China would want to hack the election, <laughs> not to favor Trump. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? Right.
0: laughs> I, I don't know. I think if if I if I were China, I would want Trump yeah, as yeah. as the president of the United States because I would want him as I would I would want an incompetent as my <laughs> chief rival. Mm.
1: Like, you have
0: you know president obama talked about a shift to the pacific rim in 2013
1: Eleven. Eleven. Yeah, 2011. That's when he came over here
0: <laughs> and he and he was never able to get that going because of the number of domestic issues that he was addressing yeah. but you don't hear trump talk about that at all no and it, it's it, it's surprising you know back in 2010 i had a, a client who was had a client um, who was a, a world-known world investor. And he believed that China, excuse me, he believed that Asia was going to be the next burgeoning economy in the 21st century. And he moved to a country in Asia in 1999, 2000, because he felt the 1800s, it was all about Europe. London was the, was the core. 1900s, all about the United States. New York was the core don't shanghai beijing seoul singapore tokyo that's going to be the power structure he said that's where i want to raise my kids and and i I think if you had anyone who was a student of history or in any way had a thought in his or her mind they would think the same thing but unfortunately we don't have that with the current occupant of the white house
1: Mm -hmm. Mm. I just want to pivot a little bit uh, sideways, I guess. Uh, not many uh, of, our, of our listeners would know this name, but I, I'm just aware of it through some, some of the readings that I've done. Rob Blagojevich?
0: Bro- uh, Rod Blagojevich.
1: Yeah, yeah, Rod. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So he's a uh, he was a, a dirty politician in Chicago, right?
0: He he was one of our six governors who have served federal prison. Wow. We're we're pretty, we're pretty good at that.
2: (laughs)
1: Right. So, so he got a pardon by Trump? Did he? No,
0: he did not get a pardon. His sentence was commuted. And the difference is, I'm, I'm not sure if you have this system in the, in Australia or in the Northern territory where what it means is he is allowed to go free after serving whatever amount of time he served. And doesn't have to, doesn't have to complete his sentence, but by law, he's still a felon.
1: Okay.
2: Right. Doesn't lose the charges.
0: He don't, Right. And, and even though I, I would have liked to have seen him in prison for the entire term, because I think, you know, I think he was a corrupt politician, alleged to have done many things, not just trying to sell Barack Obama's former Senate seat, but he also tried to shake down the CEO of a children's hospital in Chicago so but that aside his sentence was in excess of what other individuals had received for committing similar and in some cases probably worse white collar criminal offenses you know he received 14 years and just to give you a a snapshot the judge who sentenced him was a hard-nosed very experienced judge he was also a judge uh, who was in charge of the last, or excuse me, the most recent mob trial in Chicago, and that was a very popular, or I don't know, popular is the right word, but <laughs> very well reported uh, trial in the mafia in Chicago in 2010-2011. And those, and one of those individuals who was accused of a number and found guilty of a number of murders, I think, only received 12 years where Ron wow. received 14. So there is certainly an, I think a legitimate argument that his sentence was excessive in comparison to other people. And it becomes one of those weird situations where, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah. There, there were a lot of people who were upset at what Blagojevich did, but they would look at it and say, well, this feeds into the problem with the inequities of the justice system and the sentencing where you have an individual who certainly is guilty of serious crimes, but not necessarily deserving of a sentence that is more than twice what the previous governor who was convicted of public corruption received just three or four years earlier. And that becomes the difference. So, you know, I I don't want to give Donald Trump any, any credit there, because I think he did it for purely political reasons. Uh, but in some sense, it probably was fair.
2: Right. Mm.
1: Very interesting, because there's a few things that, that come off that. One is why didn't this? Why didn't uh, Rod Blagovich appeal to the higher court? Well, that's oh, he did. Oh, oh no,
0: he, no, he, he his all his appeals were exhausted. He appealed right. to the the intermediate federal court. He appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court twice. And unsurprisingly, uh, his appeals were rejected. And I'm sure he, and that's why I said the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There are a lot of people who don't have the power of Rob Lagojevich who have been convicted of different offenses who are minorities who mm-hmm. have experienced the same type of Inequity in the justice system. Right. And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to be apologetic for Rob Legoyevich because I think he's a crook. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think there are deeper issues there. And it's, so it's not the point I'm making is it's not surprising that the appellate court and the US Supreme Court would say, no, that sentence is fair. Right. Because Can we just more, more often than that, that's what they do.
1: Okay. This is a question that I'm I'm glad I thought of it because I would have been kicking myself had I not asked you this after the podcast. Clarence Thomas. You're African American. He's African American. I have read countless articles on Clarence Thomas. And for the life of me, I just cannot understand how he could be the most right wing of the right-wing judges on the bench in the Supreme Court?
0: I, I think the, the biggest offense for for me with Clarence Thomas is that he was selected by George H.W. Bush to replace Thurgood Marshall. Yes.
1: Um,
0: I, I think it was an insult to Thurgood Marshall's legacy. I think it was an insult to Black Americans in general to think that... Well, if one is black, then I, you know, if, I, if there's a black liberal, I can get a black conservative. Well, there are, there were and are a number of black judges who were more qualified than Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, at the time he was elevated in 1991, had been a federal judge for only a handful of years. Think, I think he had only been elevated to the D.C. Circuit the previous year, and before that had an undistinguished career in the EELC so this was not an individual who I think you would say you're going to we're going to peg you to be the next rising star that he was never that guy and I think was so insulting for people who are students of history and students of law is that typically black kids are taught you gotta be better you gotta run faster you gotta jump higher to compete And the one time we didn't have to do that, (laughs) you pick the least qualified person who you possibly can. Now, Mm -hmm. to answer your question, how he became so conservative, I I, I don't know that. Um, I, I know that from his experience, he believed that he was treated unfairly when he was at Yale because he was assumed to have gotten it only because of affirmative action. And I don't know if that's true. To me, it doesn't matter if it's true. Um, the reality is Affirmative Action was a program that was designed years before he got to Yale with the thought process and the focus upon leveling a field, leveling a playing field. And I, I truly believe that he's carried uh, uh, just a chip on his shoulder for years because
1: of that. mm Hmm. On this subject, but I think Jeff, what, sorry, go ahead, please.
0: No, I was saying, but, but what's deeper than that, I think, is what you're seeing now is, as you mentioned, he's probably the most conservative of the conservatives, but is his clerks, his former clerks, who were once considered the outliers of conservative legal policy. They're now moving into the mainstream. That's what's scary.
1: And that was because going to be
0: what? Apparently, the, the person who replaced Gorsuch on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, was a former Colorado Supreme Court justice who was a woman who clerked for Clarence Thomas, and apparently she's just as right-wing as he is.
1: Is she African-American? No, she's white. Right, right. So that was going to be my next question. Now, one thing that is slightly foreign to us, no, not slightly, it's quite foreign to us here in Australia, is is the the government picking the... The ju- judiciary. you know, I mean, there is a process here in Australia that does involve the government, but it's done in a far more civilised and fair right. way. Uh, and the recommendations of, of the legal profession are taken on board as being serious. Now, that all seems to be thrown out the window in the US. Uh, and what we see now is a completely partisan bench uh, who pretend not to be, uh, but, their, you know, their actions speak louder than their words. Now, right,
0: I, 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 Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Um, so my, my question was, with Trump apparently uh, picking judges uh, at a record clip, um, have you as a trial attorney faced any of these new judges and have you noticed the difference yet?
0: I have not. And the judges in the Northern District of Illinois, where I tend to practice, are usually very good. And... Because the, the the U.S. Senate has a process of it's called a blue slip. It's one of these old line um, Senate procedures. It's probably not written anywhere, but they came up with it in a in a smoky cloakroom somewhere,
2: mm.
0: where the the senators from a home state usually have to sign off on a particular um, person who's going to be elevated to a federal court in that state, whether on the the trial bench or the intermediate appellate bench. So even if they're picking some, even if the, the, even if the white house is selecting someone of a different party. So they're selecting, let's say Donald Trump is selecting a conservative Republican to be a judge on one of the federal courts in the state of Illinois, the two democratic Illinois senators would still have to agree on that person. The point being is Even if they have Republican or right-wing leanings, you can pretty much guarantee they're going to be qualified. Most of the individuals who you're seeing who are unqualified are people who are um, from states like Kentucky (laughs) where Mitch McConnell has a a strong base.
1: Yeah, I heard there's some 36-year-old fellow that they're trying to put on the bench now that... You know, has got the thumbs exactly. down from the, from the legal profession as being, if nothing else, not experienced enough. Exactly. Well, Pete, I'm sorry for hogging this interview, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it would
2: be, re- would be remiss of me uh, to allow you to wind it up without asking. I mean, I know we've been through the civil rights movement. I know we've done COVID-19. But I'm going to ask the most hard-hitting question of all Chicago Bulls. (laughs) Cubs, Bears, or Bulls, Nick, and why? White Sox.
0: I'm a Chicago Chicago White Sox fan to the day I die. Love it. And after after that, um, I'm Chicago Bulls.
2: Yep. Okay, that's it. I'm done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nick, it's been tremendous having you on on, uh, the podcast. I know it's getting late for you back there. Thank you very
0: much. I appreciate your time. Um,
1: I know, uh, I know you're a little bit uh, concerned about you being, uh, uh, you know, being able to uh, outdo Bill, but there was never a competition. <laughs> um, I just enjoy talking to you very much. I enjoy learning you from you. Um, you, you. You've certainly filled, uh, you know, a few holes in, in my understanding of U.S. politics and and uh, and law. And I'm, I'm particularly interested and feel a little bit uh, better about what you said last, which was the fact that. Uh, you know, Trump can't slot in uh, uh, judges in, in Illinois at least without some sort of Democratic t- uh, tick, which is which is right. very very good mm-hmm. to know. I'm going to let you go um, and enjoy the rest of your evening. And uh, thanks again, Nick. Thanks,
0: a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.